Good morning. I'm Sheila Cast. We're on the record. 76 years and five weeks. That's how long, on average, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention expect people born in 2021 to live. Life expectancy in the United States shrank by nearly three years, 2.7 years to be precise, between 2019 and 2021. In response, the Bloomberg American Health Initiative released a report laying out 10 steps to reverse this trend. Here to talk about these ideas is Dr. Joshua Sharfstein, Vice Dean for Public Health Practice and Community Engagement in the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Director of the Bloomberg American Health Initiative. Previously, he served as Maryland Health Secretary, as Principal Deputy Commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and as Commissioner of Health for Baltimore City. Dr. Sharfstein, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Sheila. So this decline happened over the pandemic. What role did COVID-19 play in reducing life expectancy? Well, it's true that the steepest part of the decline happened over the pandemic. But if you look, it was really 2014 when life expectancy peaked in this country. And ever since then, it's been flat or declining a little bit before it really dropped during the pandemic. And this drop was the largest in a century since World War I and the pandemic influenza. And there's no question that COVID is the number one cause. Um, more than a million people having died of COVID in this country. Um, our estimates is that about 77% of the decline um, is reflected in, in COVID. COVID represents about that much of the decline. Well, so people may be thinking too optimistically that COVID is mostly over. So won't life expectancy bounce back? Um, I think it is uh, likely that life expectancy will will go up as COVID deaths go down. But the truth is, even before COVID, we weren't doing so well. We were 40th in the world, and I'm sure that's dropped since then. Um, for a country with all the wealth and advantages that we have, 40th seems just, uh, you know, bizarre. And it's, as I said, most likely much lower now. But we have these other challenges that are going to keep pushing our life expectancy down, taking people before their time, destroying you know their families, undermining their communities. And so really this shocking development, this enormous decline is an opportunity to do things differently. What are the other major causes of this decline in life expectancy? Well, the top one would be overdose. You know, we, we now lose more than 100,000 Americans a year uh, from overdoses. Um, the numbers are close to 1,000 in Baltimore City. That is a lot of people dying from overdose, way more than we're dying in 2014, uh, more than double. Um, and, you know, there's a lot that can be done to reduce their deaths. There's a lot that can be done to reduce COVID deaths. Even now, we have hundreds of deaths a day. Then uh, other conditions, um, homicide and suicide with firearms have gone up uh, substantially in the United States. Heart uh, disease, stroke, and diabetes have, have gone up. Motor vehicle crashes actually uh, are uh, increasing significantly, um, the number of people dying from them. So across a whole bunch of different topics that are preventable, conditions that are preventable, we're seeing more deaths. So this report basically says, let's roll up our sleeves and start to prevent them. What about cancer? Isn't that a leading cause of death? It's a leading cause of death, but it's not a leading reason why life expectancy has declined. So we focused in this report on the changes, the increases in death that have caused life expectancy to go down 
cancer is is not um, actually one of those. Now, we can still save a lot of lives by by taking action on cancer. We can prevent um, tobacco-related deaths. We can reduce hepatitis C, cause liver cancer. Um, there are a lot of uh, ways we can increase um, access to better care for patients with cancer to reduce cancer deaths. So that's part of the broader agenda of improving life expectancy. This report, though, is focused on reversing some of the increases that we've had recently. And I want to ask you about some of the specific ideas, but let me ask you first, overall, how did the decline in life expectancy affect different racial groups in the U.S.? It's a great question, and the report points this out, that it did not affect them equally. In fact, um, where there was this 2.8-year decline overall from 2014 to 2021, um, that decline was uh, more like uh, 4 four and a half years for black Americans and six years for um, American Indians, Alaska Natives, uh, indigenous individuals in this country. And so um, it is uh, absolutely true that this overall number is the, the headline, but underneath we see incredibly uh, substantial declines affecting uh, communities that uh, frankly were lower to begin with. And as you said, the Bloomberg American Health Initiative proposed 10 ideas to improve life expectancy, ideas like funding COVID vaccination and treatment, helping communities plan ahead for heat waves, promoting technology to stop drunk drivers from operating vehicles. I want to pick up on what you said about overdose deaths. What ideas does the initiative have about preventing drug overdose deaths? For overdose, we put forward two ideas, one of them from... Uh, Dr. Brendan Saloner, that the federal government, states, and localities should make the use of medications that treat opioid use disorder the standard of care. These medications, which include methadone and buprenorphine, can reduce mortality by 70, 80 percent. So an incredible benefit to people, and yet so few people get them. I think there was recently a study that in 2019, more than four in five people who could benefit from these life-saving medicines do not get them. In fact, in many parts of the country, you can't get them in the emergency department. You can't get them in jail when people are there and potentially could start treatment, um, which would not only help save their lives, but also reduce the chance of recidivism and having to go back to jail for committing more crimes. So what uh, Dr. Saloner is saying is, let's treat um, addiction, like the medical condition that it is, let's make sure the most effective treatment is available everywhere people go, and it becomes the standard of care. The, the other idea was from um, Dr. Javier Cepeda and Dr. Sean Allen, that there should be an expansion in harm reduction services. Harm reduction being an evidence-based public health strategy that works with people who use drugs without judgment, coercion, discrimination, we're even requiring that they stop use drugs before they get support. So this is like giving people Narcan, Naloxone, or supporting a syringe service program um, and, and connecting people to treatment, to other services uh, when they come in to exchange their syringes. Um, and there are other types of programs, um, innovative harm reduction programs that are out there, including public health vending machines and overdose prevention sites. And I think their idea here is that, look, we have this massive challenge. Fentanyl in particular is killing so many Americans. We have to try something new. And there are these promising ideas that can be implemented and studied. 
This is On the Record. I'm Sheila Cass, speaking with Dr. Joshua Sharfstein, who directs the Bloomberg American Health Initiative at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. We're talking about the initiative's list of 10 ideas to reverse declining life expectancy in the U.S. Taken together, heart disease, stroke, and diabetes represent the most common cause of death in the United States. What actions could prevent these conditions? The idea that we focused on in this report is the idea of reducing sodium, salt, in the processed food supply of this country. This idea comes from Dr. Sonia Angel, um, one of our um, more recent um, uh, additions to the faculty at Johns Hopkins. And Dr. Angel points out that, you know, many people think about salt as something that you add to your food, but really for processed food, it's already there. There's nothing you can do. Um, And there's a lot of evidence that as the salt consumption comes down, blood pressure goes down. When blood pressure goes down, there are fewer heart attacks and strokes. Um, And so her recommendation is to switch from voluntary targets for how much salt can be in processed food to mandatory targets for how much salt can be in processed food. And in doing so, help all of us consume less salt, uh, be less likely to have high blood pressure and less likely to have a heart attack or stroke. Most of the ideas you're putting forward are not new. I mean, if they have not been put into practice, at least not widely, what would make the difference now? Well, um, that's a great question. You're right. They're not new. They, they rest on an enormous amount of evidence, in fact. In many cases, though, there are things moving forward. For example, there are voluntary targets for, for salt intake um, and for salt levels in foods. And so moving it to a mandatory target is not you know, a crazy idea. Other ideas, uh, for example, there are places, Johns Hopkins is one where there's a lot of access to medications to treat opioid use disorder, but there are many, many places where that's not the case. So I think what we're trying to say is we have to move beyond like, there's a best practice here, there's a best practice there. We have to find ways to lift all of the practices so that we're taking the best ideas, the best evidence, evidence that's been generated over a considerable period of time and really putting them into practice. I also think that just the idea that the whole country is falling so far behind in health right now, maybe is an opportunity for people to say, okay, what can we do that would actually make a difference? And so we're trying to put these together and talking about them in a different way, not just on their own issue, but as part of an overall national challenge that needs to be addressed. Well, and Looking at that overall picture, tick off for me what you think the greatest barriers are to enacting ideas, like for drug overdoses, for COVID, for teen suicide. What Name one thing that's standing in the way of each of these ideas. Well, we'd have to go, go one by one. If you go to the, the COVID um, funding, which is important not just for new generations of vaccines, but actually delivering those vaccines to people right now we don't have a supportive Congress. Um, That's one where uh, the politics in Washington have to change for people to realize that COVID remains a threat to us and that investing in the public health response could save a lot of lives. There's there's no beating around the bush with that one. That one has to do with um, some major uh, issues in national politics. On saving lives from overdose, it's a little bit different. I think, for example, the issue of making medications a standard of care, that really relates a lot to the healthcare system and the healthcare system embracing um, this. And 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 there are some reasons that it, it hasn't, you know, stigma being among them, but I think we're starting to see that break down. And so here we're trying to give an idea that has momentum 
a shove forward. And the same thing for harm reduction. You know, for the first time, uh, we have uh, harm reduction as part of the national drug control strategy um, at this at this level, thanks to the first physician who is now the national um, drug czar. So I do think that there's some momentum, and we're really trying to to push on that and move things forward significantly in, in that area. Um, you mentioned the plan of motor vehicle crashes. That's actually the law that there should be better technology to detect impaired driving. Um, and so it's really asking people to follow through on that and not try to impede it, which could happen. You know, I could go on. I do think it's a mix. You know, some of these are political obstacles. Some of them are funding obstacles. Some of them may be focus obstacles. But um, if you put it all together, um, what's at stake is whether we live or die. It's it's whether our children, you know, can can live the lives that they want to live. And public health has a lot to say about how to uh, reverse this horrible trend. And these ideas are a really important starting point. But we already spend so much on health care in this country. Why aren't we seeing the payoff? Well, I think it may be in part because we do spend so much on health care that we don't see the payoff. Um, our approach in this country has been um, to spend almost everything on health for health care after people actually get sick. And so the idea is that we have to shift some of that investment and focus to prevention. And when you do that, it's the best kind of health care, the health care you don't need at all. Thank you for all these ideas. Thanks so much for, for talking about them. Dr. Joshua Sharfstein is Vice Dean for Public Health Practice and Community Engagement in the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Director of the Bloomberg American Health Initiative. Short break on the record when we're back, saving lives by regulating firearms. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. Life expectancy in the United States fell by three years between 2019 and 2021, and gun violence, both homicide and suicide, is a big factor driving the decline. A recent report by the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health proposed ways to reverse the trend. What does it say about preventing deaths involving firearms? Cassandra Crefasi co-directs the Center for Gun Violence Solutions at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She's also an associate professor in the school's Department of Health Policy and Management. Cassandra Crefasi, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Last year, 47,000 Americans died from gun-related homicides and suicides. How are gun deaths affecting life expectancy in the U.S.? Gun violence is contributing to declines in life expectancy in the U.S. And this is due in part to gun homicides uh, disproportionately impacting young people. Gun deaths are um, increasing in the U.S. And so I expect we're going to continue to see declines in life expectancy in coming years 
as firearms continue to disproportionately impact portions of our population? I I would think that the drivers of suicides are quite different than those of homicides. You mentioned the impact of gun deaths among young people. Who is most at risk for homicides involving a gun? Who's most at risk for suicide involving a gun? We see the highest rates of gun homicide in the U.S. among young Black boys and men. So among those age 15 to 34, we see exceptionally high rates of gun homicide. And while rates of gun suicide increase among all age groups in the teen years, they tend to level off or decline as most uh, most demographic groups get older. But for white Americans, white males in particular, those rates stay high and tend to increase as they get older. One of the 10 recommendations out of this report is that cities should, quote, strengthen and expand community violence intervention programs, close quote. In Baltimore, Safe Streets is an example. How do community violence intervention programs work? Community violence intervention programs focus on meeting people where they are and interrupting cycles of violence. Often we have historically concentrated disadvantage into certain areas of our communities, and we have paired that with historic disinvestment. This means that we have areas of our communities and individuals living in those communities without access to good jobs, good housing, safe water, good schools. And so what community violence intervention programs do is they recognize that the environments that folks are in might lead them to engage in certain behaviors or Um, anti-social norms that could lead them to be at greater risk of violence, victimization, or perpetration. And so these programs, they meet people where they are, they interrupt these, these beefs, these disputes that might be cropping up. They connect individuals with supports and services to help them change the way that they are behaving and recognize that there are other opportunities available to them, which include providing them with job training, transitional housing, other supports that might make them uh, better equipped to move forward with their lives. And and so how much of a difference do these programs make? I mean, what, what do we see in results? Implementation is really important when it comes to these programs. And it's not just about having the right workers who can serve as credible messengers and make connections with those at greatest risk of violence involvement but it's also about having sufficient services and programs available to people so that when needs are identified, those needs can be met by the services. And when these programs are robust with well-trained folks who are doing the interruption case management and helping these folks pick a different path, they can be exceptionally effective at reducing violence. But if you intervene and say, we can provide you these, these other services, these alternatives, but then those alternatives aren't there. Um, That can lead to some issues with program implementation. That's Cassandra Crafasi, co-director of the Center for Gun Violence Solutions at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Here on the record on WIPR, I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about how gun violence affects life expectancy in the U.S. Another recommendation in the report is that states should adopt policies proven to reduce gun-related homicides and suicides. I want to talk about some of those. Maryland is one of 19 states that have enacted 
extreme risk protection orders, also known as red flag laws, which allow people who were concerned about imminent violence to ask a court to temporarily restrict a person's access to firearms. What impact have you seen in these states? In states that have enacted extreme risk protection order laws, we're starting to see some evidence of effect uh, with regard to preventing firearm suicide in particular. One note of caution, these laws are relatively new. Um, very few states had these policies prior to 2016. So we've seen immense expansion over the last handful of years, uh, but they have real potential to intervene during a time of crisis. It's important to keep in mind that these policies are a civil procedure. They're built off of domestic violence protection orders, and they provide people with an opportunity to temporarily separate someone from their firearms during a time of crisis. That crisis could be risk of suicide. It might also be a risk of committing a mass shooting. And we have some um, case reports coming out of California that individuals who are subject to an ERPO after making uh, threats of committing a mass shooting um, they did not go on to perpetrate a mass shooting. So we have some emerging evidence on these policies, but we know from domestic violence protection order literature that removing firearms from risky situations is a really important way to keep harm from happening. ERPO is the acronym Extreme Risk Protection Orders. Another example of policies that reduce violence are permit to purchase laws. What are those laws? So a permit to purchase law, sometimes referred to as firearm purchaser licensing laws, this is a system that requires someone to get a license before they buy a gun. So if you think about the process of buying a car, you first get a license, verify that you can drive, then you go into the car dealership, you buy your car, you drive it off the lot. So it's taking that same process and applying it to gun purchasing. And we see these laws currently in 10 states. And when you have this process, Often it's functioning at the state level. State law enforcement may have more time to complete a background check. That background check might be facilitated with fingerprinting. Often there may be safety training as a requirement as well for getting this license. And when these laws are in place, we see fewer guns diverted for use in crime, lower rates of homicide, including mass shootings, and lower rates of suicide. So this is a, a nice population level tool that has the potential to impact multiple forms of violence. How much of an impact? What does the data show? So when you look at a range of the outcomes that, that we've analyzed, uh, looking at different units of analysis, different geographies and time periods, we consistently see that permit to purchase laws are effective at reducing violence, anywhere from 10% to 30% reductions in gun homicide, depending on your outcome and time period, and anywhere from 15 to 30% reductions in gun suicide. These policies create an opportunity to delay impulsive acquisition and to better identify and screen out individuals who are prohibited from owning firearms. You know, gun violence can feel like an unchangeable fact of American life, given the number of guns in the country and the contentious politics we're in today. When you ask Americans about these policies that we've been discussing, extreme risk protection orders and permit to purchase laws, what do you find? What What are people's opinions? So our center has been doing biannual public opinion polling on policies and 
programs to address um, gun violence since 2013. And it's really important to get specific. If you just ask people, do you want more or less laws or stronger or weaker gun laws, you don't really have anything to act on with that information. And so we've been asking very specific questions like, do you think people should have to get a license before they buy a gun? Do you think law enforcement should be allowed to petition the court to temporarily separate someone from their firearms during a time of crisis? And when you get specific, we actually find very broad public support for the majority of these policies. So for example, um, over 70% of US adults support requiring gun purchasers to get a license. And that includes more than 60% of gun owners. And when you ask gun owners who live in states where these laws are already in place, that support jumps up to 75%. So contrary to what we might hear that we can't agree on things and, and we don't know what works to address gun violence, we actually have a pretty robust evidence base for policies that can reduce harms associated with firearms, as was discussed in this report. And they, they enjoy very broad um, public support across demographic groups, across Democrats and Republicans, across gun owners and non-gun owners. And so I think it's very important that we're looking to areas of agreement because that creates opportunities to move forward. Cassandra, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Cassandra Kravasi co-directs the Center for Gun Violence Solutions at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. At the On the Record page at WIPR.org, we've got more information about the center and its research. I'm Sheila Cass. Glad you're with us on the record. Come back tomorrow. Tomorrow.